Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. All right, good morning everybody again. Uh, I'm very excited to be able to jump into uh, the Abraham story again. This is the, the third week that we've been studying Abraham. And we could go, we could go weeks more. Uh, there's so much that the Lord does in his life. There's so much difficulty that the Lord calls him into, but also so much promise that the Lord keeps. My kids and I, this past week, um, just, I remember, and then I just introduced them to, for the first time, David Blaine. David Blaine is, he got his start as a street uh, magician, doing like little card tricks and sleight of hand stuff, you know, and then it grew over the years and got bigger and bigger and bigger, and, bigger. and I was a huge magic nerd. Growing up, I, any kind of, you know, YouTube didn't exist much back then, but any magic act I could get my hand on, I was just amazed and fascinated by these guys uh, who could just do this seemingly impossible stuff. So here's just a little rap sheet of what David Blaine has done in the past number of years. He's held his breath for seven minutes. He didn't eat for 44 days. He stood among one million bulls shooting, shooting past his body for three days. Uh, he was buried alive for seven days. He sat in a block of ice for 63 hours. He flew 25,000 feet. This is the most recent. This was during quarantine when we were born and nothing else to do. You can watch him like the movie Up. He saddled up on 52 helium balloons and floated 25,000 feet above the Arizona desert. So many of these things you would you watch, and you go, there's no way. You know, in the weeks leading up to it, he's hyping it up. He's, you know, there's commercials on TV. There's all those YouTube ads and Facebook ads. And you're just like, there, there's no way. This is impossible. There's absolutely no conceivable way that he's going to be able to do it again. And yet he does. What we're walking into today in the story of Abraham and Isaac is it is a seemingly impossible situation. It seems like there is no way that God can make right on what he is saying. It is such a confusing statement that God is going to make to Abraham about what he can do with Isaac. And it leaves us thinking there, there's no way. It's impossible that God could come through. Especially when you think about Abraham's track record. What has happened to Abraham up until now? Well, God comes to him, Genesis 12, gives him the promise, says, I'm going to make of you a nation that's going to be as many of the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And following that promise, that statement, what does Abraham do? Well, there's a little bit of success. There's a lot of bit of failure. And so he does. He leaves his home. He follows the Lord. He has no idea where he's going. He travels all through the ancient areas. He lands in Egypt. He comes back out. God provides for him in that entire journey. And then 
things start to go a little sideways. He starts to wonder, I'm getting really old, and I'm not sure that God's actually going to be able to pull through. So I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands if this thing is actually going to come true. And so the first way he takes matters into his own hands, he's not able to have children, and so he decides and attempts to have a child with another woman, ends up does having a child with another woman, but that was not the child of the promise that God had asked him to wait for. In fact, he did not wait. He just pushed his will through. Not only that, failure after failure. Then Sarah comes into the picture. Brian did a great job up here last week talking about the unlikely faith of Sarah, that she would be commended when her faith was so fickle and so faltering at so many points in her journey. She blasts in God's face, if you remember from last week. There's no way! That's impossible! I'm going to have a child when I'm this old? No way. So you've got Abraham, who skirts God's will and does it his own way. You've got Sarah, who laughs in God's face. And then, you have Isaac, who is finally born. And the unlikeliest of situations happens. So let's read Hebrews as it recaps what happened in Genesis 22. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his own son. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be made. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What we're going to do for the remainder of this sermon is, is slowly walk through Genesis 22 and, and live into the story as it's being told in that original context. And just try to answer this question, how do I, in the same way that Abraham is asked to sacrifice the very thing he loved the most? So Jesus comes on the scene and says things like, therefore... Luke 14, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so this is not just a sort of a one and done kind of a thing between Abraham and God. This is the way God works. He is the owner of everything, including us. He can give, he can take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then our job is to respond to whatever his command is and to follow to trust it, even when it seems absolutely impossible. The following Jesus is possible, one. But on the other hand, you have Jesus say something like in Matthew 10, 39, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Give up everything, you receive everything you actually needed in the first place. And so there's this duality going on. You give up everything. It's a costly road. There's a cost to discipleship, as you may have heard that described, but there is also great and immense more benefit back to you. So how do we, how does our heart begin to crack open in such a way that we can say anything you have us to do? We're there. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know where we're going to go. We don't know how we're going to eat. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know how we're going to take care of all these desires for comfort we have inside of ourselves, but we are going to trust you. How do we get there? Four things that we see 
from the passage this morning. One, you hear the command. You hear the command to sacrifice. Second, you count the cost. Third, you see the cross. And fourth, you then sacrifice or give with contentment. So first, hear the command. Let's just begin reading in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 3. Here is the story of Abraham and Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. <clears throat> and his son Isaac. And he cut the word for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I think one of the first questions we have to address when we come to this text is just like any time you're reading scripture and something hits you in the face, it's okay to take some time with that and try to answer the question, try to find some good sources to answer questions that come up in your head. A question that might very well be coming up in your head is, why? Why would God do that? Why would God tell a father to kill a son? That, that seems really odd and really contrary to the nature of God. Really, really contrary even to the law when God tells Noah, no, shed no man's blood. And anyone who sheds a man's blood, his man will also be avenged. And so this seems on the face of it, like this is totally outlandish, and like God has somehow veered off of the course of the rest of his holy world. I think there's three ways that we can help to describe this. Two, I'm going to tell you now. Uh, the third one, I'm going to tell you a little bit later. One is, I mean, let's, let's get into the story. It's been, it's been 25 years that from the time that the promise was given to the time that the promise was fulfilled. From the time that God said, you're going to have a child, and that's going to be the beginning of a wonderful nation. 25 years to the time when that child was finally born. What an arduous 25 years those were. And this is the one whom God said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac in Genesis 17. He says, this is my boy. This is the one that I've been talking about. And Abraham overhears that conversation. After all this, we finally have a child we've longed for. Our family is complete. We can finally follow God in the way we're, we're starting to receive some of the blessings that He said we were going to give. We made it. We're here. We've arrived. Praise the Lord. We can kick back a little bit. And now you're telling me to kill the very one that you just took 25 years to provide. I think the key word that begins to answer this question is the word test. Hebrews, um, that we just read, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, is the very same word, similar uh, word, Hebrew to Greek, that is used here. Here's what the definition of testing is. To learn the nature or character of someone or something by submitting such to a thorough and extensive test. So, how is metal made? How is steel, strong steel, strong enough to build skyscrapers, how is that made? You know? They put it in a furnace 
with a, with a couple of other metals to help it do its job. 3,000 degrees. That's a third of the temperature of the sun. And it, it slowly begins to melt out of the iron oxide, the root-based metal, out of the ground. It begins to melt all of the impurities out of it. And those impurities rise to the top, and what is left is this molten, lava-like substance that, when it cools, is able to hold up a 20-story building. So, in the very same way, what is being described here is a testing of faith. And it's not a testing like, I'm going to check and see if Abraham really is who he says he is. It's much more of a, I'm going to mold Abraham into who I am making him to be. Because if, if we understand that God is sovereign, let's start there. If God is sovereign, then he already knows what Abraham is going to do. And he already knows what he is going to do for Abraham. He already knows that a substitute is going to be found at the top of that mountain. And he already knows that Abraham's faith is up for the task. So it's not so much that uh, Abraham is being tested so that God can figure out if he really believes this stuff, if he really trusts him. It's more so he is being tested so that he himself can figure out and become more settled in. I really do believe this. I really can give what I love the most, the most precious thing in my life. I trust God that much because of everything we've already gone through. I trust him that much that I can give him trust. I don't know how, I don't know what it's going to look like, but he can provide. Not only that, I think there's a, a second way that helps us to understand. This is God's promise. This is not Isaac's, I'm oh, sorry, Abraham's promise to make happen. This is God's promise. And if God is sovereign, and God also does not go back on his promise, if he can't lie, then this promise is not only painful to Abraham. This is also, if, like the song we just sang, if we have a Father in heaven, if we have a great high priest who is able to understand how we feel, then this is not some aloof God sort of shooting lightning bolts and telling you know, words from the Lord for a bunch of His people to do His bidding. This is a Father who is carefully dictating everything in His children's life so that they would grow. And so I think with those two understandings, this is as painful. Suffering is painful for the Father to place into our lives. But because of His good discipline, because of His will, He allows things that He hates to accomplish what He wants. Okay. So we've, we've spent some time considering what is the text that's going on here. So let's jump to counting the cost. Uh, verses 5 and 6, let's move on. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. Hear the confidence in what he says. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. Can you imagine the conflicting emotions going on inside Abraham right now? 
right? He's both being torn in two at the thought of what if I have to drive this knife into my child? How horrendous would that have been? And Hebrews tells us that he, he thought, I may very have to do that. He considered it was able even... Uh, God was able even to raise him from the dead. He thought, there may very well, this knife may have to be plunged into my son. At the very same time saying, we're both coming back. This, this deep courage that comes out of the settledness in who God is, and also what must have been a heart-changing uh, um, climb at that mountain. As he lays the wood on his son's back, and he has the fire starter and the knife and the rope in his pack. I'm sure the weight of that wood on his son's shoulders, he was also carrying the weight of the world on his. The, the sharpness of that knife is how he was feeling in that moment, being pierced by what he thought he may actually have to go through and do. Following God is not comfortable. Following God is not easy. Following God is that feeling, like in that 3,000 degree oven, where all of the things, all of the distrust, all of the unbelief, all of the sin is beginning to be burned off slowly over the course of time. And that stuff is rising to the top. And what is growing inside of you is this deep bedrock of steel faith. But that doesn't happen out of nothing. That happens out of Fire. That happens out of testing. That happens out of suffering and trials that the Lord sovereignly puts in your life. The very same word here is also used in James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That is the dynamic that we're talking about. It is active. Suffering is active in your life if you are approaching that suffering by faith. Trusting that that suffering is going to do a good work in you and not trying with every bit of yourself to push it off of you and avoid it. And one, excuse me, back to those old, excuse me, idols of comfort. So what would you place in these blanks? For Abraham, it's your son. Your only son, who you love. What could that be for you? Most likely, Abraham had become so knit to Isaac by this point. He had forgotten. This is the dynamic of the, the Old Testament Israelites all the way through. They get what they want, and then they forget God. He finally got what he wanted, and most likely, he had also begun to sway and fear and forget to continue to rely on God. So what is that for you? What is causing you to veer away from relying on God? What is it that is, a, is too much of a comfort in your life? Maybe it's Jesus saying, give me your bank account, your only bank account that you love. Be generous, tithe, save, live simply. Or, or give me your calendar, your only calendar. Give me your schedule, your only schedule that you love. Invest in people even though it's not easy. Go to church even though you'd rather be at home. Uh, be slow down one day every seven and consider the Lord and enjoy the creation that He's given. 
give me your talents, your only talents that you love, that you're so proud of yourself about, that you're so thankful that you have. There are many women out there that have given uh, a, a career and whatever that is to stay home and raise their children. There are many men and women who have left corporate America and high-paying jobs to go be missionaries and die in the jungle somewhere. Or it could be something for most of us just as small as giving up of a half of a day to serve a neighbor when you see a need. What could God be calling you to this point? Where could God be calling you to sacrifice? What might have an inordinate hold on your heart that God graciously is ripping out of you so that he can replace it with a solid faith? So I think kind of the cost, there's got to be more than sword. There's got to be more than just, I'm going to leave everything and I'm going to follow God. And who, you know, it doesn't matter what's behind me, I'm just going to keep going. There is both cost and there is benefit. And here is the ultimate benefit for seven and eight. And Isaac said to his father, uh, to his father Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? Offering. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the land for a burnt offering. So they both went. Both of them together. Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide. Speaking of kids' ministry, if you walk in that room and take a left, there's a, there's a green old school uh, chocolate. Super cool. On the left bottom corner of that chalkboard is sitting up uh, this book that the kids are currently going through in their curriculum. And it's called 40 Reasons, The Names of God, 40 Reasons to Trust God. There is a name of God that is being revealed here in this statement. God will provide. In fact, if you notice after the story, if you keep on reading, the, the mountain that they stand on is renamed. It is renamed, God will provide. And what is that? In Hebrew, Jehovah, Jireh. God will provide. Here's the way that the kids' ministry curriculum says it. Kids, this is your kids' ministry lesson for the day. Sorry, I know you've got to be more fun. When summer ends and school begins, you get a list of the school supplies you need for your new class. But you can't get those things yourself. Parents and grandparents love you and provide the school supplies that you need. God loves us and knows exactly what we need. He promises to provide for us and he does. Isn't it so easy to live with a scarcity mentality that life's short, uh, resources are limited, I've just got to look out for number one. I've got to cling to everything as tightly as I can because if I don't look out for me, who in the world is going to? But what if we believe this? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. What, what kind of freedom could be filled with in our lives? What kind of abandon could we give and serve and love with if we actually believe this? How do we get there? Our hearts aren't there most of the time. We spend most of our time tight-gripped over our life. How do we begin 
to open our hands. Verse 13. Abraham looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. As he is raising the knife up, as he has bound his child, and, and laid him over wood that he would soon ignite. Right before the knife goes down, God says, Stop! Look, a ram caught in the thicket. It's a substitute for Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love. At the very last moment, God provides. And if this were a one-time thing, if that was the only time in all of Scripture that God ever did that, we might discount it. But this moment points to a grand moment. And I'm sure if you've been with the Scriptures for a while, if you've been a believer for a while, you probably can begin to hear the echoes of, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is our assurance of court. There is another Lamb that this is pointing to. That on the very same mountain, did you know that? On the very same mountain, 2,000 years later, another son walked up the mountain with wood on his back. But instead of a substitute being provided for him, he was slain to be our substitute. He stood in our place, the Lamb of God, he was crushed. It was the will of the Father, Isaiah 53 says, to crush His only Son. Here's the third reason why we can trust that God knows what He's doing. He's not asking Abraham to do anything He has not already done Himself. He is not asking you to give up anything more precious than what He has already given up. Like Romans 8 says, if he's given you Jesus, then how would he not also graciously give you all things? His son, his only son, whom he loves. How would he not take care of your bank account? How would he not take care of your schedule? How would he not take care of your job? How would he not take care of your child? How would he not take care of those things that he knows that you love? In fact, he loves them all more. And is all the more committed to them. This is where our hands can begin to open up. Because as difficult as this must have been for Abraham to walk this faith, how much more difficult would it have been for the father to let his son die? And then to stay there for a number of days. And light fell over all of that. And waited. But in the same way that Hebrews... 11 says that he received him back. So did the father receive his son back three days later as he raises him from the grave. And that same spirit that raised him now raises us and calls us to walk the of faith. So what does this look like? What does this look like in real time? Uh, Hebrews 11, 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Essentially saying, Abraham felt like this was it. He was going to have to do it. And yet, as he gave up everything, he actually received back even better. 
Now this is conjecture. This doesn't say, uh, it's not said in the text, but it does say that the relationship between Abraham and Isaac continues to be strong. It does say that Isaac continues to be the blessed one. It does say that Isaac is one that buries his father and honors the life of his father and is with him up until the very end. I mean, you can just imagine, if they went through this kind of an ordeal together, what kind of relationship would that grow between father and son? And so when we give things up, the ordeal that that is to give things up, and the ordeal that it is for God to have to provide instead of us, there's something that grows stronger. When we give something away, we actually receive it back all the better. It may not look exactly like you want. It's not like you give God a dollar and he gives you back ten. No. But it is. You give the best of what you have because he has already given the best of what he has. Eric Nadell, Chariots of Fire guy. Uh, you may have heard of him before. He's the When I Run, I Feel God's Pleasure guy. Uh, he won the 400-meter Olympic run in 1924. In 1925, he leaves it all behind to go be a missionary to China. It, he begins as a teacher uh, working in an, in an English school, and then he goes to help his brother, who is also over there as a missionary, as a doctor. And I'm sure everyone around him must have been saying, you're insane. You're at the top of your game right now. Why would you leave? There's so much greatness to be found. This is what it looks like to give everything up. When in the world's eyes, you look insane. In the world's eyes, this does not calculate. This does not compute. There's no way that this is going to work out for the better. You are insane. In 1941, the war broke out between China and, and Japan, and all foreigners were put into prison. They only had one meal a day. There were terrible conditions. They shoved them into bunkhouses. The disease was rampant. And yet, Eric Liddell's joy was infectious. He had given everything. And then even in the worst, because he gave everything up, even in the worst scenario, he knew he already had everything he needed. He knew where he was heading when he died. He knew that Jehovah Jireh was his God and was providing everything that he needed, even as meager as it may have felt at the time. And in 1945, just six months before the prisoners were released, he died of brain tumor. And he writes a book called The Disciplines of the Christian Life, and says this. You will know as much of God, and only as much of God, as you are willing to put into practice. Because the ultimate thing, when we give whatever else our heart might be so tight-fisted about, what we receive back is God himself. And everything else thrown into it. But what is he saying? He's saying, you really want to enjoy God? Then have nothing else. You really want to, to feel his pleasure? Then renounce all of the pleasures. This isn't necessarily go be a monk somewhere, but this is be thoughtful about what is gripping your heart right now that is not God, and then throw it away. Because you can trust. Because of this story, because of the fulfillment of the story in Christ, that he will give you back more than you need.
So whether that's food, whether that's drink, whether that's money, whether that's a relationship, whether that's your job, whether it's, it's just maybe for the first time actually saying, Jesus, you can have my life. I finally get it. I finally trust you. I can't hold it anymore. Here it is. You will receive it back. Your good is With a new foundation of faith that's steel and not real. Like and so a really helpful picture that the Lord gives us is that statement. Because at it we are reminded of his body growth. We are reminded of his bloodshed. And so when we take of the bread and the cup once a month, we are remembering Christ's death until it comes. We are remembering that because this happened, as real as this bread and cup is, so is his body broken and his blood poured out. And as real as this happened, we can trust him with anything else in our lives. We can give everything to him. We can follow him in whatever he is calling us into. So whatever he might be calling you into today, to trust him by faith, to give up and renounce, here is the provision. So when we taste and see that the Lord is good. So three questions that First Corinthians asks us to ask of our congregation every time we take the Lord's Supper is, first, do you know Have you come to a place where you have given your life to Jesus? Secondly, um, are you connected to a community of believers? This is not a me and God kind of thing. This is a family affair. Right? If this table were bigger, we would all be sitting around it and clinking glasses like we will one day in the new heavens and a new earth. And thirdly, is there anyone right now, this is a table of community? This is a table of reconciliation? And so is there anyone in your life right now that your heart is set against? That if they were to ask for forgiveness, you would not. Your relationships don't have to be perfect, but this is a call once a month to say, where is my heart? And is there anyone whom I need to leave the sacrifice at the altar, like Jesus says, and go make it right? And then next month, I'm not going to so long. But if those three things are true of you, then I invite you to this table. What you'll see, we have two stations up front. Uh, we have one station there in the back. And so feel free, whichever one is closer to you, uh, go ahead and in a moment after I pray, you can go ahead and stand, receive, and sit back um, at your seat. I'll give you a moment. You've got to peel the top part off to get the wafer and then peel the bottom part to get the juice. Uh, I'll give you a moment to do that and then we'll take that together as a sign of our unity as a body of Christ. And so on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of And the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We are washed in the blood of the Lamb as our substitute. As often as we do this, let's do it in remembrance of Let's pray. So Father, we ask that you would use this meal to further steal our faith. That you would use this meal to further convince us that there was a lamb who was slain in our stead. 
that we have brought nothing to this table, but we receive everything from it. And as we are filled and fueled and nourished, we can then with strength go back out those doors and follow you whatever you would call us to. So feed us now. Nourish our faith as we take this table together. We pray in Christ.